A new name showing a broader focus for a child welfare agency that dates back to the 19th century. Over that period of time, we've understood that it is possible to go upstream to prevent little problems from becoming life-altering crises. That story coming up on WGLT's Sound Ideas. I'm John Norton. Also on today's show, the big dust storm that led to a major crash on I-55 would be less likely to happen again with more sustainable farm techniques. Anything you can do that leaves more residue or more vegetation on the surface is going to prevent erosion, whether it's from water or wind. Plus, it's the opening weekend of the season at the Corn Crib with much more than just baseball planned. Creating those memories is, for me, what's important here at the ballpark. Stories follow a Bloomington Normal News update, which is just ahead. This is WGLT Sound Ideas on 891 and WGLT.org, part of the NPR network. Support for WGLT comes from Bloomington Normal Audiology. Hear My Story continues with local patient Bill McKay. They're all doctors of audiology, knowing that they've got the background to do a, a, a complete evaluation and not just sell hearing aids. It's they make that connection for you. Bill's full story can be found at bnaudiology.com. From the campus of Illinois State University in Normal, this is WGLT's news magazine, Sound Ideas. I'm John Norton. An Illinois nonprofit with Bloomington Roots is changing its name and rebranding itself as a holistic family support system. The group known for more than a century as Children's Home and Aid has become Brightpoint. WGLT correspondent Michelle Steinbacher talks with two Brightpoint leaders about the changes. Mike Shaver, president and CEO of Brightpoint, formerly Children's Home and Aid. Are you based in the Chicago area? Our headquarters is in Chicago. We are a statewide organization serving 67 counties and about 30,000 families every year. We started as an organization uh, in downstate Illinois. We kind of grew where the need was. We have uh, three regions uh, and uh, I guess four regions, a northern region, a central region, a southern region, and a metropolitan region. I'm Mindy Smith. I'm the regional vice president for the central region of newly named Bright Point. I'm located here at our Bloomington office. Children's Home and Aid has been a big part of this community as well as around the state. Is it a different organization or is it the same organization with a new name? And this is a pivot uh, for us. Uh, For 140 years, we have been sort of we have been solving crises at the point that there are a, a crisis. And that's that's been sort of the staple of what we've done. Over that period of time, we've understood that it is possible to go upstream. It is possible to prevent uh, little problems from becoming life-altering crises. And Bright Point sort of represents our approach to working with families to do just that, to, uh, to be that beacon, to recognize family as the most important asset for child and family well-being. And while we aren't doing a major disruption in our services, uh, we are going to uh, bring a new kind of focus to our work that puts families at the center of everything we do. We've been working the past almost year and a half on you know the the vision, the, these you know the imperative actions of where we were moving without the name, because the name is important, but it's not the the only thing. You know the logo and and everything looks great, but really it is about this transformation on how we see the service that we're doing and how we want to see it in the future, and really partnering with families. So- what are the services that you do if you're changing the name to focus on this attention? 
to the moments before crisis where intervention can come in and maybe avoid a child being removed from a home. What is it that Bright Point does? Here in Bloomington and the central counties that surround Bloomington Normal, um, we provide home visiting services and a lot of prevention family support programming. So these are programs of working with families that are um, providing knowledge, we're providing um, additional resources and support to help um, children and families get off to a great start and throughout. So we see families prenatally in our doula program all the way through our home visiting and early childhood programming as well with uh, the Scott Family and Child Center. So um, it's it's not just one thing. People come to us at different points and, and they might use our crisis nursery, which is a 24-7 program that provides crisis care as well as connecting families to resources. So no matter when they're coming in, we're looking at it as a preventative, more proactive, asset-driven focus so we connect families and listen to their voice on what's going to help them thrive. How do we think really intentionally about, one, moving upstream wherever possible, two, asking ourselves what are we doing for families to solve the little problems before they become large crises? And, and doing that with an eye towards equity, an eye towards understanding not all families have access to the resources to be the best parent that they can be. And all three of those are front and center in our, on, in our strategy. How would a family get connected with Bright Point? So locally, it's a variety of ways. Um, a lot of it is actually us being out in the communities, talking about our services, and it's family-to-family -family referring. So um, our referral sources come from private of one-on-ones to uh, larger um, community partnerships where referrals come in with that warm referral. They know who we are. It's um, more of like, you know, what can we provide that maybe is, is a gap and how we can work with our community partners to, to fill that gap. Who works for you? What kind of people are involved at Bright Point? Sure. In the central region, we have um, around 130 employees right now, and we have um, early childhood professionals. We have um, social workers, master social workers. We have behavioral health because we have clinical programs as well. Uh, we have volunteers. We have peer-to-peer -peer mentors. Um, so it's a variety of, of people working here. Would the focus be on the adults or on the child, or is it the whole family? I'm just curious about the setup. Traditional services years ago it would be primary just for the child or just for the parent. That's not the approach that, that, we're, that we have taken or that we're going to continue to take as this transformation is occurring with, with Bright Point. We're looking at the family. So whether or not you come in as a student in our early childhood center or a parent in behavioral health, we're looking at that dyadic model, that parent-child relationship, the caregivers, the community even at times, on who's working with that family. So it really is this like this two-gen kind of approach where we know that we can't just work with one to actually help and support the full family. I'm Michelle Steinbacher and this is Sound Ideas. We're here with Mendy Smith and Mike Shaver of Bright Point, formerly known as Children's Home and Aid. We wanted to make this announcement here in Bloomington in the central region because this is the place where our parent support work was most developed. It was the place that where we had the largest footprint on home visiting first in the organization. We had always provided uh, high quality early childhood services for families. We had been building out uh, other primary prevention programs. And in many respects, it has been at the tip of the spear at what the rest of the organization, in fact, the rest of the sector had to catch up with. One of the things that we recognized with the name Children's Home and Aid is that it's hard to present yourself as an organization that has a two-generation approach if what people hear in your name is homes for children, right? That is our legacy. That is our history. But what we have learned and what we're practicing and what science tells us and what the developments in neuropsychology are telling us 
is that if you really want to focus on child and family well-being, you really can't do any better than to invest in the family. And historically, the work that we've done over 140 years, too often invested in the crisis side of the work, removing a child from the family. And we know that that is not a good development for a child, that that children who are removed and separated from their parents, the risk that they suffer a lifetime of developmental uh, issues is, is extraordinary. So we really challenge ourselves to think about how, what can we do as an organization to put an end to the need for foster care as we know it. And that's why Bright Point was always going to capture that idea better than Children's Home and Aid. A follow-up to what you just said, put an end to foster care as we know it. There will always be individual exceptions to that, right? There will always be cases where a child's welfare unfortunately requires the separation. So is that still part of Bright Point? It is. And in fact, we're not flipping a switch and walking away from the provision and support of families who need the services of uh, the child welfare system. But here's what we know. Nationally, there are about a half million children who will sleep in a home that's not their own tonight. In Illinois, that number is a close to 20,000 kids. And it's our sense and the data would tell a story that suggests as many as 60 to 75% of those kids, but for a different set of interventions at the right time, might not have had to enter the foster care system. And, and our job is to really find that place. There will always be a need. Families have crises. There are issues that necessitate, just for the child's safety, that removal. We also aspire that when that happens, the work that we do after that accelerates the process, supports families in a different way when they, they need those supports, and that kids spend less time in the foster care system. Uh, and if they can't return to their biological family, that we maintain connections and that we find them them a different home as soon as is possible. So it is really thinking about it on, on both ends. That was Mike Shaver and Mindy Smith with Bright Point speaking with WGLT correspondent Michelle Steinbacher. Coming up on our next Sound Ideas on Tuesday afternoon, you'll hear about the role fathers play when agencies such as Bright Point have to intervene. Dads are often left out of family services. Hear how a coalition in McLean County wants to change that. That's Tuesday on Sound Ideas. I'm John Norton. Pop-up dust storms such as the May 1st event that resulted in the loss of eight lives on an Illinois interstate could eventually be curtailed if more agricultural producers take advantage of government-funded programs that help defray the costs associated with adopting sustainable conservation agriculture practices on their farms. That's the conclusion of many agricultural conservation proponents, including Pete Fandel, professor of agriculture at Illinois Central College and a cover crop specialist with the Illinois Sustainable Agriculture Partnership. He recently spoke with WGLT Ag correspondent Tim Alexander. So there's many reasons why we do tillage, but obviously once you till the soil, you kind of disrupt the surface of the soil. And obviously then the small particles, if they get too dry and we have too strong a winds, can be moved by either wind or water erosion to a different location. Um, and there's a lot of ways to obviously reduce that. We can do reduced tillage, in other words, less tillage, um, which then results in more of the previous crop's residue being left on the soil surface, which helps protect some of that soil. And then the other option is obviously pure no-till, where you don't do any tillage before you plant. 
Um, and a lot of times with our with our early planting dates and cool temperatures, that gets it's a little bit difficult for some farmers to do in certain locations. And then the other option we obviously is cover crops, where we plant a crop or another plant during the off season when our corn and soybeans aren't growing to help kind of protect that soil surface, keep the soil biology alive, and kind of hold that soil in place. What are some of the various types of cover crops that are used in Illinois and specifically here in central Illinois? What kind of cover crops do you use on your farm uh, in uh, Woodford County, Pete? Okay, the mo the, definitely the number one cover crop used in the state of Illinois is cereal rye. Um, so it's uh, many farmers use that in both ahead of corn and soybeans. Um, it tends to be, in my opinion, a much better uh, cover crop to use ahead of soybeans than corn, but a lot of farmers still do it. Uh, but cereal rye is uh, basically a, um, a grain-type crop, obviously, that produces rye. Um, but again, when we use it as a cover crop, you're planting it in the fall before you harvest, maybe, or shortly after harvest in the fall. And that plant's going to overwinter as a small, you know, grass plant overwinter. And then, obviously, you let it grow in the spring until you're pretty much close to being ready to plant in the spring with your next crop. You kill that cereal rye plant and then either, quote, no-till into there or do some very limited tillage and then plant your, the crop that you intend to be in that field for the coming year. And again, cereal rye is the most common one you'll see in the state of Illinois. Um, it pretty much precedes most of the soybean fields you'll see and does precede many soybean fields. Um, personally, though, um, I, I try to use different cover crops in different fields. I do like cereal rye and rapeseed um, ahead of soybeans. But then typically ahead of corn, I'll switch to something like either winter barley or triticale and maybe putting in some radishes or some turnips or other things in with that or some clovers, uh, depending on the situation, the field conditions and what potential maybe problem I'm trying to solve in the individual field. Now, do these cover crops actually provide a revenue for your farm? Does the expense for these cover crops just come out of your uh, general uh of farm income? Um, I guess when you first, when farmers first tried these probably in the last decade or so, more or less, yes, it was coming out of your own pocket. Um, but since that time, things have developed where there's lots of government programs now to help you cost share, you know, doing new practices like that um, with the new, all the new carbon trading that's going on. And, uh, you know, some, there's some major, major companies and corporations are now basically paying farmers who use cover crops because in, in essentially, essentially, if we're growing a crop 11 or 12 months out of the year in a field versus the six months in a corn and soybean rotation, we're actually sequestering more carbon in the soil. So now we're considering having carbon credits. And then obviously some company that maybe is trying to become carbon neutral or that maybe does a little bit of pollution in the atmosphere from burning some, you know, sulfur fuel or something or fuel source, um, they can now buy those carbon credits from farmers that are storing that carbon. So that's kind of a new big emerging market that's been happening the last few years. And I think that trend looks like it's probably going to continue into the future. So there are now uh, cash benefits to farmers for uh, doing uh, things like planting cover crops. Um, so in relation to the uh, May 1st tragedy on Interstate 55 uh, involving the, uh, the dust storm at the Sangamon County line, uh, resulting in seven fatalities, uh, do, do you think that uh, widespread adoption of these practices, uh, including cover crops and reduced tillage and no tillage, can can have a big enough impact to uh, to help these problems, uh, to help alleviate uh, the frequency of these problems? I know they don't happen that much in Illinois, but perhaps in other states. Well, for sure. Any, anything you can do that leaves more residue or more vegetation on the surface is going to prevent erosion, whether it's from water or wind. So, yeah, obviously less tillage, conservation tillage, 
uh, you know, leaving more residue on the surface, cover crops, you know, any of those practices obviously are going to help alleviate that type of issue um, from, you know, again, less erosion happening. Again, the tragedy on I-55 uh, on May 1st aside, uh, do you perhaps envision a federal mandate for cover crops uh, someday and, uh, and why? Well, I think there's a lot of reasons that potentially could happen. You know, we have the whole situation of the Gulf hypoxia situation in the Gulf of Mexico, you know, issues like this that tend to, you know, that happen pretty infrequently. Um, and with the current administration we have of being very environmentally friendly and um, I, I mean, there's some issue. And if you look at some of the other parts of the country where there's some other um, laws have been passed in other parts of the country, it doesn't, I mean, it, it points itself to the fact that eventually there potentially could be some legislation or some ruling that would maybe not, I wouldn't say dictate or mandate, but maybe encourage farmers to try some of these practices more so than what we've seen so far. Uh, wouldn't be out of the realm of possibilities. That was Illinois Central College professor Pete Fandel speaking with WGLT ag correspondent Tim Alexander about cover crops. Support for WGLT agriculture coverage comes from Growmark and its FS members, your trusted advisor in all your ag decisions. This is Sound Ideas on WGLT. I'm John Norton. Our reporter, Lauren Warnicke, stopped by the corn crib earlier this week as final preparations were being made for opening day. That includes Corny's big summer blowout on Saturday night. A few staff members took a brief break in the shade to talk about what goes into creating great game day experiences. Gavin Leggett is a Bloomington Normal native. He started working at the corn crib in the concession stands as a high schooler and steadily moved up the ladder. From our director of food and beverage to our director of sales uh, and now assistant general manager. What is the umbrella of some of your responsibilities? So we're overseeing the day-to-day -day operations of the facility, um, mainly the stadium, um, just because we have activity in here every day. Uh, and then the team as well. So the Corn Belters um, and the Colonel's Collegiate League also take up a big part of our time. Um, and then to communicating with sponsors is kind of my big role here. The corn crib was Kate Swope's first job as a 16-year-old starting three years ago. She is now the lead concession worker. So I basically just delegate and be the boss woman of the whole concession stand, I guess. Swope says she enjoys being involved in sports behind the scenes, having been an equipment manager in high school. I was manager for wrestling team and then volleyball, and I did football and baseball a little bit, but I really liked wrestling manager. And just like the behind the scenes is more what I'm part of. I really like the statistics of it and all that. It's really cool to me. The entire corn crib operation includes six full-time employees, 57 interns, and up to 40 part-time and seasonal staff like Swope. Leggett says it takes a team of about 50 people to create a successful game day. The demand is even greater this weekend, which includes daily double headers that started yesterday and Saturday's big summer blowout, complete with fireworks, a carnival-like atmosphere, and mascot corny on hand to greet guests. Then there's the food and drinks, including 1,800 bottles of beer. And that's only of our domestic beers, so your Bud Light, your McUltra, Budweiser. Um, 1,800 of those will get us through at least our first upcoming week, and then we'll place weekly orders. Um, that can include about 1,200 hot dogs on hand, 100 pounds of popcorn kernels, which if you think about it, you know, the size of a popcorn kernel and we're popping all of those, we'll go through about two 50-pound bags a week. Bradley Yoakum was heavily involved in high school sports in upstate New York. In high school, I played football, I wrestled, and I tried out track for 
one season. <laughs> Yoakum was a sports management intern last summer and has since become the Corn Crib's year-round director of facilities. They brought me on in August of 2022, and ever since I've been working alongside these guys doing um, facilities management. Um, some of the things that kind of fall under my jurisdiction are just the maintenance and upgrading of the facility before and during all of the events, ranging from concerts rentals, practices, soccer games, baseball games, you name it. I mean, we have it going on. Some of the things that um, I'm required to maintain and upgrade would be anything from clubhouses, the turf, um, the concourse, suites, bathrooms, like I said, you name it. Um, The majority of the physical properties around here are things that I am required to um, keep track of. So how do you maintain the love for the game while um, dealing with ornery customers or uh, I don't know how you maintain turf, (laughs) vacuuming the the turf? Um, As far as maintaining that love, you just really got to see the big picture. Um, So even today it was 85 degrees out. Um, I had some intern crew out there cleaning the seating bowl. Not exactly the most fun part of my job, but you really got to look at the big picture. It's for the fans and for the enjoyment of them. And so if that means I got to be bending down to pick up trash, then it is totally worth it. Um, And as far as the turf goes, I do use a vacuum if I were to replace a turf patch. I will vacuum out some loose pieces when I put in the seam tape and re-glue in a new piece. So it is used. And moments like that of creating those memories is... For me, what's important here at the ballpark, you know, baseball is such a small percentage of what we do here. Again, Gavin Leggett. We are more so of an entertainment venue um, and really just a place for people and families to come out, create those memories, for these players to create memories here at our field as they continue their dreams of uh, going pro. And how do you find and train folks that are really... I don't know that anybody's passionate about paper towels, but that are passionate as you are about the guest experience and making sure that all those details are taken care of. So um, as I mentioned before, the big picture is huge. Um, And to remind them every single day, the reason that they're doing this, it's easy to get lost in the sauce and be like, man, this kind of sucks. This kind of sucks. I don't really, you know, see passion for picking up garbage or taking out trash. But if you can keep reminding yourself that it's for the fans, that big experience will pay off to take some pride in that work. um, It definitely helps. Um, especially to appreciate the work that they do because I know it's difficult, it's hot out here and things like that. Um, So just kind of drill those things each and every day and make sure that um, they're able to kind of keep their passions up for what they're doing every day. That was Bradley Yoakum, Director of Facilities for the Corn Crib, speaking with WGLT's Lauren Warnicke. You also heard from lead concession worker Kate Swope and Assistant General Manager Gavin Leggett. Corny's Big Summer Blowout starts tomorrow afternoon at 4. Support for arts and culture programming on WGLT comes from PNC Financial Services. We're focusing on giving back as part of an ongoing commitment to the community PNC serves. And that's Sound Ideas today. WGLT's news magazine is made possible in part by Bloomington Normal Audiology. I'm John Norton. Story help today came from WGLT correspondents Michelle Steinbacher and Tim Alexander. You also heard from WGLT's Lauren Warnicke. The show was produced by Samantha Hill. This is 89.1 WGLT and WGLT. WGLT.org, part of the NPR network.